0: Welcome to Driving Discussions. In this series, we discuss the forces that affect road fields globally. Driving Discussions is brought to you by Argus Media, a leading independent provider of energy and commodity pricing information. As we approach February 2023, when uh, Russian products will be phased out from Europe, uh, diesel uh, has been trading with a step backwardation and and a strong crack being the product which it will be the most uh, disrupted because of the uh, phase out today we are trying to uh, we're going to try to better understand how these uh, upcoming sanctions are impacting the uh, diesel structure and how this structure is shaping the uh, global flows and therefore the uh, shipping market. My name is Alfonso Barocal, European Business Development Manager for Oil Products at iGOS Media. And to help us to analyze the current situation uh, of the diesel market and the fleet of the clean tankers that move diesel across the globe, we have here today with us, Benedict George, Senior European Market Reporter for Products and John Olet, Deputy Editor of the uh, Freight Team in London. Hello, Benedict and John. Uh, good afternoon and welcome to, to the podcast. Hi, good afternoon. Hello, guys. Uh, let's start with uh, Benedict. Uh, Benedict, uh, can you please give us uh, an update on what is the uh, current situation of the diesel market uh, in terms of the uh, stocks? Uh, the refinery runs and and margins, and the uh, structure of the diesel cure, please. Absolutely. The big picture is that diesel is still
1: very tightly supplied in Europe. Although demand is at the same time starting to suffer from the onset of recession, which includes a major industrial slowdown, so the future path of prices is very uncertain at this point. It all depends how severe this recession is going to be and how quickly it's going to destroy diesel demand. But leaving the uncertainty about demand to one side, we can say that supply is much shorter than usual at the moment and is getting even shorter. The forward curve in diesel markets is, as you say, steeply backwardated still. It's not as steeply backwardated as it has been in recent weeks the December futures, ice gas oil futures are only about five to ten dollars a ton uh, above the January futures. But we have to remember the January futures will be non-Russian only. So from January, the exchange ice will not allow sellers to deliver Russian diesel in fulfillment of those futures. Obviously, if you exclude Russian diesel, the pool of available supply is much smaller. So from surveying traders, we currently think the spread between Russian and non-Russian diesel was about $40 or $50 per tonne. So you could actually think of that 5 to $10 a tonne backwardation as more like $50 a tonne or so on a like-for-like basis. So in other words, the futures market is still signaling a very tight physical market. Futures for prompter delivery are much more expensive than those for later delivery. So one of the big problems creating this tightness at the moment is that Europe has much less diesel in storage now than it did a year ago or even, indeed, before the pandemic. Diesel storage is especially concentrated in the Netherlands, as a lot of the oil industry is in Europe. And the volumes there are the most responsive to market forces. And we can see that the Netherlands only has around 60 percent of the diesel in storage that it had before the pandemic. There's a huge depletion of diesel storage volumes. It's a significant problem because buyers who have storage can afford to wait out spikes in the price. Whereas if you don't have very much in storage, you can't afford to wait until the price is right. You have to make contractual deliveries to your own customers. We have to buy whatever you need today, whatever the price is. Without storage, you can't have that flexibility. So traders tell me that this problem has been making spikes in the price much more severe and more frequent than they might have been otherwise in recent months. The best example, I think, of all of this is the strikes that we had in France in the last month or two. Those strikes immobilized all but one of France's oil refineries in October. It was more than 5% of Europe's overall oil refining capacity that was offline because of these strikes uh diesel premiums over crude went up to the highest level ever during those strikes there were similar strikes about three years ago actually which i believe lasted even longer but diesel prices did not react nearly so strongly back then they didn't go up to anything like an all-time high and this shows how the market now is extremely vulnerable to this kind of shock and apart from demonstrating the vulnerability of the market the french strikes also made traders use up storage volumes even faster than they were anyway. So we look at data on independently held storage volumes in the Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Antwerp region. And in just one week in early October, 10% of the diesel and gas oil in those tanks was used up from one week to the next. It's the biggest one week change I think I've ever seen. And it's a sign of how little people have in storage elsewhere that the strikes in France had such a stark impact on storage volumes in the neighboring region of uh, Amsterdam, Rotterdam and Antwerp. The prices have calmed down a bit since the French strikes. They've all finished now all of those strikes. Uh, the diesel premium over crude is is back around the level. It was in late September. It's a long way off the all time high that we had in October, but it's still very, very high by normal standards. It's about three times its average from 2019, and it's about double its highest level from 2019. So very high by normal standards. Refineries obviously want to respond to this by producing a lot of diesel to capture those very large margins over crude and in an ideal market, that's what would happen. The price would go up. We'd produce more and the price would come down again. But in practice, it's not that simple. There are a lot of challenges that refineries face in trying to increase diesel production. And in fact, it's exactly this that's keeping the diesel price so high. The fact that refineries can't increase production to take advantage of that price as much as they want to. Uh, so for example, the problems refineries are having is that they've faced much higher costs than usual, sort of uh, apart from crude itself, they have faced much higher operating costs in terms of natural gas being extremely expensive. Obviously that, that makes hydrogen very expensive. Refiners use hydrogen for various critical processes. Carbon emissions allowances in Europe have also become a lot more expensive over the last couple of years. So, all of this has fed into amplifying that diesel cost versus crude, and it's made it more difficult for refiners to increase production. A lot of refineries also were shut down altogether after the pandemic because they found at that time that they couldn't make any profit. Now we have less refining capacity in Europe as a result. There have also been a swathe of refineries with fires and explosions and malfunctions over the summer, partly, I think, because of the extremely hot weather that we had for a lot of the summer, uh, which I've heard makes uh, all kinds of problems with the refining processes. Um, and, And then we had the strikes in France, of course, keeping a whole. Section of Europe's refining capacity offline then and workers at other refineries are now planning or threatening further strikes in the UK, some in the Netherlands and some in Italy, and these things are all making less oil refining capacity available in Europe to increase production. And another key point as well that I think gets overlooked sometimes is that refineries can't increase production of one thing without increasing production of other things as well. Uh, They take a certain amount of crude and they have to turn this crude into a range of different products. They can't just increase diesel production and keep everything else constant. To some extent, they can change the yield of one product versus another, but to make a significant increase in diesel production, they have to produce more of other stuff too. And those other things have been much cheaper than diesel this year. So for one thing, the more that diesel output is increased, the more crude refiners have to use, so the more expensive crude gets, and the slimmer that the margin of everything else over crude gets. High retail prices have also weighed very heavily on gasoline consumption, particularly in the US. The US is a key centre of gasoline demand, so that made it harder for European refineries to make money on the gasoline that they had to make if they wanted to make more diesel. That could become a problem again over the winter, I think, when when, uh, gasoline demand tends to be weaker, even at the best of times. Naphtha's been oversupplied as well, very cheap in Europe, because China's zero-Covid policy has been crushing Asian industrial demand for Naphtha. So one way of looking at it is that diesel buyers have partly been having to compensate refineries for the losses that they were making on other products in in recent months. Um, And the the crazy thing about all of this is that I've hardly even mentioned Russia yet, so that gives you an idea of how serious this this crisis in diesel supply is. Europe is still getting diesel on long term contracts from Russia, which buyers have no legal way to exit. In October, Europe got about 2.8 million tons of diesel and and gas also products related to diesel uh, from from Russia in one month. That was nearly 40% of all of the diesel and gas all that Europe got from from other regions, and it matches up to approximately 10% of Europe's demand for those products. A lot of those term contracts, long term contracts from Russia are going to expire at the end of December. They can't be renewed, of course, uh, because of sanctions, and then in February it will become fully illegal to import. Any Russian diesel at all. So while dealing with the shortage of storage and the refining costs and the lack of available refining capacity that I was talking about, Europe is also going to have to find nearly three million tons of diesel and gas oil per month from new sources uh, within, within a month or two. Europe has to do this. Um, the only option is to run Europe's refineries as hard as possible with all the extra costs that, that entails. And at the same time, try to outbid Asian buyers for additional diesel from the Middle East and India. And this means diesel will be much, much more expensive. However, as I said at the start, we don't know how severe this recession is going to be. We don't know how quickly it's going to deplete demand. So that's the big uncertainty. If it turns out we don't actually need nearly as much diesel because our economy is ground to a halt then maybe we won't be so worried about replacing all of the Russian diesel in a couple of months. But as things stand, it will be a humongous
0: task to try and replace all of that Russian diesel. All right. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you, Benedict. Um, so uh, it's it's clear that, that uh, the refining capacity in Europe, it won't be able to for all the reasons that that you just uh, described it won't be able to replace those those russian uh, barrels neither uh, replace partially those those uh, russian barrels so europe having this net short position will have to substitute uh, those those uh, russian cargos uh, from uh, from arbitrage uh, uh, cargos from another region are, are we seeing an increase in cargos at this stage coming from uh, east of Suez or the US lately?
1: Yes, we are seeing an increase already in these cargo volumes coming from the east in particular. So to take things again back to the problem Europe had in October with the strikes in France, Europe needed to import a lot of extra diesel. And so what it did was import a normal volume of diesel from Russia, but much, much more than normal from the east. So Saudi Arabia, India, and the UAE are the next biggest suppliers to Europe after Russia. And in October, they supplied about 2.7 million tons of diesel and gas oil into Europe. That almost matched, their combined volume almost matched Russia's 2.8 million tons. And that was the most that those three countries have sent to Europe in any month since at least 2016, possibly ever in history. We just don't have the data further back than that. This data is from Tank Tracking Service for TEXA, by the way. Um, Europe also took a few diesel cargoes, much smaller volume, but a few cargoes from China in October, which is very unusual. The Chinese government has been recently increasing the quotas uh, for the diesel that its companies are allowed to export each month. And that has increased the volume of diesel coming out of that country. There's a lot of uncertainty still about whether those large quotas are going to keep on coming uh, or whether it's just temporary, but it's possible that Europe will continue to get more diesels from China next year consistently. The US gets talked about as a possible source of diesel for Europe and the US does sell some diesel to Europe, but that's more challenging because the US itself is very tight on diesel at the moment as well, like Europe is, and US producers have a lot of long term relationships with buyers in Latin America. There's less uh, arbitrage diesel there that is simply responding to price signals as there is a lot of arbitrage diesel out of the Middle East and out of India. So the US is a a less promising source of diesel to replace the Russian diesel for Europe. The shipments from the east, which, as I say, are probably going to play the biggest part. They get mostly carried using long range 2 LR2 tankers. These carry 90 to 1000 tons roughly each. Um, The size of of the ship used on each trading route is generally proportional to the length of the route, basically because larger ships are less convenient for buyers. But if you're further away, you have to make the saving on scale in order to compete with local sellers. So, uh, for example, Russia will sell to Europe using handy sized vessels that are about a third of the size of the LR2 tankers. But if you're India or Saudi Arabia, you have to make the saving on the cost by using large tankers. So one thing that was remarkable in October, I thought, was that roughly one third of the diesel and gas oil entering Europe was carried on the LR2 ships, the bigger ships, and roughly one third was also carried on the handy sized ships, just very slightly more on the handy sized ships. So roughly the same volume on each of these type of ship, which is extraordinary because historically. Russian sellers, as I say, use the smaller ones, and those smaller ones have completely dominated the flow, dominated the trade. In just the previous month, in September, the smaller ships, the handy-sized ships, carried 50% more volume into Europe than the larger LR2 ships, but then in October, roughly equal. So, apart from anything else, this is already leading to a very dramatic change
0: on the logistical side of, of physically how Europe receives its diesel. Right. Thank you, uh, Benedict, for this um, excellent analysis, Um, John. The um, just as we're speaking about shipping, uh, the uh, the global diesel market will experience disruption because of the um, of the phase out of the uh, Russian products. This means there may be a a change in the directions and in the size of the uh, of the flows. Uh, What do you think will be the impact on on rates? and availability of clean tankers to cover these uh, routes?
2: Yes, so uh, I thought the best place to start on would be um, something Benedict mentioned there about shipments potentially coming in from China. Um, We do see this uh, sometimes, particularly in the first quarter of the year, and uh, VLCCs, very large crude carriers, um, which are the largest size of tankers and and typically do not carry clean products. a lot of them are built in china japan and south korea and they come into the market in the first quarter of the year now when a ship is brand new it can carry any type of clean products it needs without having to have the tank specially cleaned or anything because they're they're brand new so the potential does exist for us to see these vlccs coming into europe now typically we may only see one or two um but given that europe is going to be so short of <clears throat> of diesel and potentially jet fuel um that those we could see those used increasingly in the first quarter of the year after they come out so this is an idea that, that that's been bounced around a bit but there are a couple of factors against that which i think need to be taken into account um, as benedict mentioned i talked about storage space And obviously when when storage space starts to fill up in Europe, a lot of it will be taken up by gasoline and naphtha and the other commodities that are are not being exported as strongly as they typically would be from Europe, which means that Europe does have limited capacity to receive such large shipments of products as would come on a VLCC. Um, I mean, we're talking 300, 400,000 tons potentially for each ship. So in that case, normally a VLCC would serve as floating storage where it arrives, it anchors somewhere off the coast, uh, usually in a predefined location uh, near to a port. So in this case, say potentially Rotterdam, and it can then um, lighter gradually over a period of weeks or months um, to, to fill up the onshore storage. But this could be a very, very costly proposal because VLCC rates for crude tankers at the moment are very, very high on largely on the back of the Russia-Ukraine conflict and an increase in the length of journeys for VLCCs. So you may see ship owners who will be very willing to take a clean product from China to Europe. Normally it used to be China to West Africa would be more of the standard voyage but to take a clean tanker from China to Europe, but then very unwilling to remain there as floating storage. Uh, So because they will be potentially missing out on very high VLCC rates. I mean, in, in November, for example, the Mideast Gulf to East Asia VLCC rate reached its highest point since April 2020. Um some of the rates for VLCCs in the US Gulf all, all carrying crude cargoes, I should specify. Um, again, they're reaching multi-year highs and rates in April 2020 uh, were very, very high because of a, a boom in storage demand. So we're talking, you know VLCC rates getting close on a, a daily earnings basis getting up to around you know hundred thousand dollars a day and and things like that, you know, rates that haven't been seen for, in a generation um so it's going to be interesting to see exactly how that plays out with regards to chinese um diesel shipments in the first quarter of next year uh because the vlccs are there but it's really going to be a matter of cost and storage um so i know that you know sometimes that's been picked up as a a potential cure for for all of europe's diesel ills but there are certain roadblocks there that need to be negotiated as Benedict mentioned, uh, the main size that we're seeing uh, is LR2s. So that would be an Afromax size in, in crude tankers, or a um, we call it a long-range two for clean tankers. So that is the size that is seeing, that and handy size ships are what are seeing the most difference. So traditionally, diesel is supplied to Europe, as Benedict mentioned, via handy sizes in the Baltic. That trade is basically going to halt officially halt in February, but likely halt in December. Currently, it can only really carry long term diesel supply contracts. Uh, So those vessels are then going to be left with essentially nothing to do. Now handy sizes typically operate in the Baltic and the Mediterranean. Um, They don't operate on longer routes. They only operate on shorter routes. So we could see the Mediterranean, which is traditionally a very expensive trade. Um, We could see that swamped with a massive number of vessels at the start of 2023. But as Benedict said, the most interesting change is what we're going to see in the long range two vessels. Now, those travel typically from North Europe and the Mediterranean to Asia. That's That's their bread and butter. Uh, and that is very typically a naphtha route now we've seen that the naphtha market is changing quite a lot Uh, cracker operators in asia in particular are looking at buying fewer term naphtha cargoes for 2023 because of the volatility in the petrochemical market there so that's you know south korea japan taiwan southeast asia um they've had to keep importing naphtha that they don't really need this year uh, because of those term contracts so we've seen very very few spot uh shipments from europe to asia on lr2s which is freeing up a lot of vessels for the diesel trade that appears to be set to continue in 2023 with this reluctance for for term naphtha and naphtha chiefly if you look at it on a europe on an entire Europe basis, the shipments haven't changed as much as you might think, and that is because there is a lot of naphtha that comes out of the Baltic, and that is typically on term contracts as opposed to a spot basis. Um, if you look at it on a purely Mediterranean basis, you can see that not only are volumes down year on year, but they've also sort of slipped in a, in the um, September, October and into November period. Um, so that's freed up a lot of LR2 vessels potentially to be used for the diesel trade where they wouldn't normally have been used. Uh, and that's going to take some of the some of the fierceness out of rates. Uh, we did see, particularly in September when this, this trend first started of ordering more diesel from India, we saw freight rates push up very, very quickly uh, on the LR2s and um, some participants in the market were saying that they weren't even sure if there were enough lr2s globally to 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 satisfy the kind of demand that was coming from europe Um, that view has shifted slightly because of this shortage in naphtha and the fairly um, fairly low outlook for naphtha volumes in 2023 so that is helping out the competition a bit but make no mistake the ton miles as in how far how many miles each ton of a product travels uh, the ton miles for lr2 vessels are definitely up Um, there's a lot more diesel coming in from india Uh, there's more coming in from the mid-east gulf and we've even seen shipments from china those were on lr2 so far but we may potentially see that shift next year so that is where the real crunch is going to come. Uh, there is the potential for Aframaxes to clean up, um, basically switch to being LR2s, but there's been a lot of cha- lot of the same changes we're seeing in clean, we're also seeing in crude. More tonne miles, a tighter supply of ships, and higher rates. So the impetus isn't really there for ship owners to clean up their Aframaxes. Uh, Afromaxes are typically used in the Baltic and from the Black Sea, so they do carry a lot of Urals crude. so we may see some switch over. Um, But that's also a very expensive proposition. You know, to to clean a ship costs anywhere from $250,000 and upwards. And the ship has to accept a fairly significant discount for several voyages after that. it can carry diesel but it certainly can't carry naphtha or jet for its early voyages um, because of the cleanliness of the product and the potential for contamination. So we may see some Aframaxes switching to LR2s but enough to make a significant difference it's unlikely. So we're going to see a lot of um, a lot of movement from the Mideast Gulf and a lot of movement potentially from even further afield. Uh, in a vessel class that typically has not been that big of a supplier of diesel. Um, and as Benedict mentioned, it's it's two or three million tons that are having to be found. Um, and we're likely to see, even with the, even with, what we've seen if diesel demand remains the same, even if the naphtha demand drops and we have those aframaxes switching into being LR2s, we're still going to see rates push up because of the sheer number of tons that has to be found for European supply. The last matter I think that needs to be touched on as well is Russia's fleet capacity and its insurance. This is a very, very unusual section of of shipping and a very unusual impact of EU sanctions. So ships are not allowed to carry Russian cargoes that's standard under the sanctions, but obviously Russian ships are already sanctioned um, just by their very nature. So the fleet capacity of Russia can still carry Russian cargoes and discharge them in places That are willing to accept them at this moment, chiefly India and China. Um, China is willing to accept uninsured vessels and does so when it accepts Iranian crude cargoes. Uh, But India requires port insurance, Indian ports require insurance for any ship that docks there. So even a sanctioned Russian vessel must have legitimate insurance before it docks at an Indian port. Now, we can see this for um, existing vessels as well that potentially are looking to not be sanctioned. Um, They will still find that they have to have legitimate insurance docking in India and that, you know, to get that insurance is now proving to be quite difficult. And that's because not because of the insurance, but in fact, the second stage of insurance, which is reinsurance. So reinsurance is basically insuring your insurance and a lot of um insurers are not capable of being on the hook for they just don't have the, the the book value to be on the hook for potentially you know 200 300 million um which can be the sort of payout levels from a port accident um so, and that's quite frequently where the biggest payouts are so for example if there's an accident the change port explosion um was you know damaged a lot of ships and and the payouts were enormous no single insurer can cover that so they distribute they basically go to a, a pool of reinsurers known as a reinsurance syndicate um, so they normally go through a primary reinsurer who will have their own syndicate that they deal with and each one of those reinsurers will pay accept a portion of the the potential payout in exchange for a portion of the insurance premium. And that covers insurers uh, in the event of, of big payouts because it's not just the hull and machinery value of the ship that can be damaged. It's whatever the, the ship, um, whatever port the ship is in, when the accident happens, you can have damage to wharves, you can have damage to um, storage, cranes. And then on top of that, you've got loss of life, various other factors so it's always much the payouts are always much higher than the pure hull and machinery value of the ship now this reinsurance goes almost exclusively through europe in one way or another much of the business is done through lloyds of london um, which is the major sort of reinsurance market and that's where a lot of these syndicates and firms will, will operate and exchange risk you do have a number of large firms outside of Lloyd's of London, but they are again chiefly European based. So we're talking Munich Re, Swiss Re, New Re, and any insurance company with Re in it uh, that does reinsurance. So they are all going to be prevented from providing insurance for a ship carrying a Russian cargo. And that means that It will be very insurance will then be, I mean, not just reluctant, they will basically refuse to provide any cover for a ship carrying a Russian cargo. Now, the way that um, this is being addressed at the moment is that Ingostrax, which is a major Russian insurer, uh, partly state owned, is agreeing to provide insurance for any ship carrying a Russian cargo into China and India. Um, And for the reinsurance, that will then in turn be provided by the Russian government. But for a lot of ship owners, this will leave a lot of questions. If they haven't worked with Ingress tracks before, they're not sure how robust the coverage from the Russian government will be um, or what the precise terms are, what the payout terms are. You know, there's a lot of potential risk there. Uh, by dealing with a a new path of insurance both the insurance and the reinsurance Um, so a lot of ship owners may step back from that Uh, India will accept Ingostrax insurance so that bit is definitely covered but for a lot of owners they may not want to take the risk you know if there is an accident god forbid then you know, they would be relying on ingostracks to pay them and ingostracks would be relying on the Russian government to provide the money. Is that going to be a problem? Are sanctions eventually going to limit how far how much Russian can the Russian government can pay outside of the country? We've already seen a variety of banking restrictions. So a lot of owners, even if they're not necessarily liable for European sanctions on a primary level they're not going to be able to operate without insurance and if they are operating without insurance if anything were to ever happen to their ship they would get nothing Um, so we're seeing this putting a a big crunch on any owners that are thinking about carrying Russian cargoes and this means that there's uh, not a lot of Russian exports that are likely to continue even to India and China um, without being carried by Russia's own fleet, insured by Russia's own government. And there are debates about whether they can meet both Russia's product export levels and Russia's crude export levels. So that is leading to, to a shortage of demand at a variety of places and is important to consider when you're looking at you know how diesel demand in Europe is going to evolve. What ships are going to carry it? Um, because if they want to ship into Europe, they can't have anything to do with the with the Russian cargoes and the Russian insurance, um, because they will be sanctioned and banned from operating in Europe. So, yeah, that's sort of a basic summary of the the key issues that are going on at the moment.
0: Thank you, uh, thank you, John. Uh, uh, really uh, complex picture with uh, different pieces that, that need to complete the puzzle. Uh, the impact of uh, NAFTA trade uh, to feed the Asian pet camps, the uh, insurance companies. Uh, that that's actually uh, thank you very much for for the insight. And thank you as well, Benedict. Uh, and with this, we we wrap up the um, the the podcast. Um, And if you enjoyed this podcast, please to be sure to tune in for other episodes in our series, driving discussions. And for more information on Argus Global Refined Products coverage, please uh, visit us at argusmedia.com forward slash oil dash products. Stay safe and see you next time.